Hi and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In today's episode, I'm talking with Nick Weber. Nick is a head of English and IBDP coordinator at Carmel School in Hong Kong, as well as being a PhD graduate in literature. We discussed the best texts Nick's ever read, studied or taught and why, a quick introduction to his career to date and current role at Carmel, his take on the most recent round of global IB results, his department's attempts at balancing canonised writers with new or local voices in the IB curriculum, specific challenges his students face at Carmel in English and how the department combats this, the successes or challenges he's noticed with the need to enshrine inquiry at the heart of each teacher's IB approach. And finally, Nick's thoughts on how to approach language at DP English level given the new course's changes. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show via Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from if you'd like to be made aware of when more episodes like this with Heads of Department become available. Alternatively, you can follow me on Twitter by searching for at ChrisJordanHK. Thanks again to Nick for finding a time around his IBDP summer admin and offering a wide variety of insights and ideas for new writers. Nick, can we just start by talking about the best text that you've ever read, studied or taught and uh, why that is, please? Uh, okay, yeah. So I probably have different answers for all three of these. Um I think probably the best text that I've read um, is Virginia, certainly most of Virginia Woolf, but um, probably Mrs. Dalloway um, is my one of my favourites, which I read at undergraduate level. Um, and But it's a text I don't like to teach uh, because I love yeah. it so much. Um, because, uh, yeah, I find um, I find that kind of classroom level analysis of a text, which I really love, I, um, I'm not, not so keen on. Um, yeah. Text which I've studied, um, probably James Joyce, staying with modernism. Um, I uh, had to study a little bit of uh, Finnegan's Wake for a little, um, for um, some of my um, thesis. And uh, it's one of the most frustrating, um, but certainly <laughs> one of the most rewarding texts I've ever uh, read. And then to teach, it's, it's really difficult to actually answer this because I find that it all depends in the moment. Um, there, there are texts which I've really enjoyed teaching um, one year that haven't worked the next, you know, so much mm. of it comes through the dynamic of the classroom and the, the students that are there, how we're feeling on the day. Um, but I've really enjoyed teaching texts, which I'm not that familiar with. And the students are not that familiar with, especially at the diploma level, because I think that um, if the students get the sense that kind of we're learning together or exploring the texts together, it can make such a big difference to the way that they engage with it rather than, okay, here's my line of inquiry about this text. This is what I want to teach and you're going to learn it. Um, finding new texts or explorations, I think has been, has been quite successful. I did this last year with the poetry of um, a Polish poet, Szymborska, um, which uh, worked really, really well. Um, I think it does work well with poetry because it's easier on the fly to kind of engage with the mm. text, even if you're not that familiar with it. Um, and this year I've returned to a text called The Visit by uh, Frederick Durenmatt, uh, which I haven't taught for, I don't know, six or seven years, um, which again has been really good this year. So a uh, slightly long answer, but there we go. No, a really good one. I, 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 that kind of, um, I like that idea of going through the text at the same kind of rate as the students are, because there is a tendency, particularly with those sort of IGCSE texts or sort of set texts where, 
I reckon the students can tell that you've almost gone dead behind the eyes yes. and you're just reciting something, which is like, which, which, which does, there are positives to that, obviously that like you bring in a lot more experience to the mm. table, but the, I think I like that idea of kind of having a, an empathy for the, yeah, for the I, th- I think, I think you need to do it with, it can only really work with kind of the older uh, DP students, I think, um, yeah. cause you need to have room in the, classroom to be able to discuss things and be wrong right and mm. teach them that you're wrong or you know explain how you're wrong and and mm. and I think that that can be um that can create a really nice environment but it's not for mm. every every text by any means I usually try to refresh maybe um out of the 13 DP texts each year I'll usually try to change up at least two or three um every year um for new stuff that I've not taught before just so yeah. that I keep myself interested as well <laughs> yeah um you, you kind of mentioned your uh, thesis there a minute ago i know that you've got like a bit of a um sort of like an interesting path into teaching in hong kong where you mm. are now so i know a few people listen to this uh from the uk who are thinking about moving abroad so can you just give us like a quick introduction in <clears throat> terms of your career to date and how you got your current role at carmel yeah i can uh yeah it's been an interesting i suppose well, I've been in Hong Kong now, thir- coming up to 13 years, like 12 and a half years. Um, and it's been, this is the most regular work I've had for the past few years being uh, being in teaching. Uh, when I first came over to Hong Kong in 2008, uh, I worked for uh, a publications company. I worked for Pearson uh, or Pearson Longman, um, working on their secondary level, uh, secondary school level uh, English language textbooks. Um, I'd come out of a, I'd done a bit of publishing in the UK, but not that much. And someone said, oh, you should apply for this job in Hong Kong, thinking, um, you know, you, I might find it interesting. Um, and a few weeks later, I was living here uh, without mm. ever really having had it on my radar at all um, as a place to move. I was living in Brighton before I came over to Hong Kong, and um, uh, it just felt like a time for a new challenge. Um so I did that for maybe 18 months uh, and then they started this new PhD fellowship program in Hong Kong um, where it was pretty well funded. Um, it was something I'd been interested in doing in the UK um, but didn't get couldn't get funding for it because getting money out of the AHRC in the UK is uh, pretty tough. Um, and I got that position here in Hong Kong. So I was um, I started my uh, PhD in English literature at HKU um, and studied there for four years completing that and did a bit of teaching here and there in between Mm. Um, and then after that I worked for the BBC um, again in education publishing they were launching the primary years um, English language curriculum uh, at that time so I worked on that just as a fixed term for a few months just doing some editing Um, and then when that came to an end uh, someone who I knew sent me a text and said oh is this job going at Carmel? Um, this might be something you're interested in. Uh, so I applied, got it, and uh, and and that's that, really. Um, so it's been, uh, although I've always been in education, um, kind of circling around different areas of education, this is the first time I've really been um, full-time involved in teaching. Um, and I started, when I started, I was an English teacher, um, mm-hmm. taught MYP uh, grade nine and Langlet uh, for the diploma. Um and did that for a couple of years, then um, became the head of department and the diploma program coordinator in the same year, which was um, <laughs> uh, 
uh, slightly stressful, um, but enjoyable. At that time, I also moved over to teaching literature rather than language, which is what I'm still teaching now. Um, and uh, and yeah, that, that's kind of my history of the, of the time in the school. Um, so things have never stayed static for too long, I think it's fair to say. Um, and uh, hope long may that continue, because I think really that's what um, I think that's what encourages the best practice in any um, work or any yeah. uh, any field is a bit of change. Something else you need to get your teeth stuck into as you go through. Your your DP coordinator for the like for secondary uh, at the moment. I was just wondering if I can ask you about we're kind of two. I can't remember like a week a week since the IB results came out, give mm-hmm. or take. And um, uh, I'm not I'm not sure about your school, like my school. Uh, generally the kind of results were as expected if not slightly inflated mm-hmm. uh, from what we'd predicted as a department I just wondered if um, I mean you feel free to speak about like all the subjects but obviously I'd, I'd be more interested in <laughs> how you feel about the English but yeah um, how, how do you feel like it, it went this time compared with last year um, yeah it's it's really difficult I the last two years have been so strange uh, and it's an unenviable position, I think, that the IB have been in uh, in regards to actually dealing with this when you've got an international education system as it is. How you're supposed to approach that country by country where obviously the response to the pandemic has been so different in so many different places. Mm. Um, it is a very difficult situation. Now, I think that last year um, was a mess um, in many ways because, of course, um, it's always difficult to remember exactly how it happened now, but we, we got our results having um, having not had exams uh, yeah. and the results last year were pretty low on those first, mm. uh, you know, our, our initial results on July 5th. And then, of course, there was this kind of worldwide appeal. Um, lots of my summer disappeared into kind of writing those appeals for our particular students, for our subjects, right. um, in the hope of getting those grades changed which I think then, I th- can't remember exactly when they were announced. It was sometime in August where they they changed the results, they updated the results, and all of a sudden, you know, everyone was happy um, because the results were far improved. Mm. Um, and again, I think a lot of this comes down to pressures from other awarding bodies, you know, um, particularly with the A-levels in the UK um, and the way that they decided to award grades last year and this year, I think, has had an impact on the IB and how they need to um, ensure that the IB students are competitive um, with the A-level students as well. Uh, This year, of course, in Hong Kong, I think we were very lucky um, because we could hold exams um, and the split... Uh, approach that the IB opted for where some students some schools did exams some schools didn't do exams um, has I don't know before the exams happened my students I don't know if it was the same with yours were they felt very hard done by um, because they had to do exams when other schools other students around the world didn't Um, but as it happens I think our results from our exam students were uh, higher than expected generally speaking um not hugely but they were definitely higher um in english um certainly our results were higher than i think we've had in several years um my 
class, my literature class, I it was difficult because it was a new curriculum, but I felt fairly confident predicting them all sixes and they all got sevens. Um, so uh, I don't know quite what to make of that. Right. I've looked at the grading boundaries for the um, for the English and the, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at those yet, but the seven, a seven seemed to be about 65 percent, um, which isn't very high. Um, mm. And I don't know whether that's going to be a reflection of the new curriculum. Um, mm. I suspect not. I suspect they've Surely lowered those not. great boundaries for what's happened yeah. this year. Um, because, yes, there were students who were getting um, on average. It was 12. I think, I think it was 12 out of 20 for a yeah. level seven in, in the late SL. I don't know what the HL, uh, HL but, uh, was 13. It's crazy. Like, for, I mean, in house, we call that maybe level five. Not, yeah. not that it's particularly. And this is quite a parochial conversation, obviously, if you're not an IB teacher, but yeah. it's that's uh, that was that was crazy when I saw that. I mean, it's, it's good for those students who were down for a level six and, like you say, got a level seven. But um, yeah. you think it's just a one a one time deal, though? Yeah, I think so. I think it has to be um, because I, I actually was um, so confused when I got those component results for it because yeah, I had student a student who got. So on paper one, they got 26 out of 40. And again, uh, yeah, this is specific mm. to the IB. And I thought, well, that there's no way that's a seven, but that's what they got. Mm. So, mm. so yeah, I think they've, they've definitely done that. Um, but I also think that the reason they've done that is exactly the same as last year in that it's pressure from other awarding bodies who, you know, the A-levels, um, if I remember correctly, they, you know, the teachers basically um, were much more heavily involved in, in those final grades because I think they were based – primarily upon the predicted grades. I can't remember exactly the, the detail of it. Um, so I think the IB had to move to make sure that students weren't being disadvantaged by doing the IB diploma yeah. um, against other awarding bodies. Uh, so my students generally are very happy. Um, they're very happy, but with the knowledge, I think that grades have gone up everywhere. So I think mm. they're, they're very cognizant of the, of the kind of double-edged sword of this, I think. Awesome. Um, and I don't think they're necessarily... There are there are definitely nerves about whether um, universities are going to accept everybody. They said they were going to because there has to be limited spaces. Oh, I um, so I think it's um, in a very very difficult couple of years. I think the IB has done better this year than it did last year. Um, mm. I don't. I haven't spoken to many to too many coordinators from schools who haven't done the um, exams, but I know that there was a potential. Um, kind of landmine left by the IB, which was that in those instances, um, students could raise a um, inquiry about their predicted grade and ask for their predicted grade oh, to God. be changed, mm. um, which I'm very glad we didn't have to deal with. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That could potentially just be, again, that's that's the summer, you know, down the drain, uh, potentially. Yeah. So fortunately this year, we've, we've managed to avoid that. We um I had I had a conversation with um the language A um sort of curriculum manager a few weeks ago Guillermo Duff and mm. he he's like quite a he talked about quite interestingly there seems to be like an ideological schism between the Hague and Cardiff where Cardiff are kind of the mm. the br the brute force of the IB so to speak and they kind of make things happen and the Hague are a lot more <clears throat> you know kind of the the the, the, the spirit or the soul of IB okay. and I do feel like this year and, and and like you say if there is influence or if there is um 
pressure from other examining boards, it kind of comes back to something he said, which is that in the future, they want to move towards something where it's it's less summative assessments. They want to limit the summative assessments as much as possible at the end, at the end of the course and make it a little bit more holistic in terms of this learner portfolio. And you can only think that Mm. having to mess around with scaled marks and percentages and all this, this stuff would, would definitely kind of be an argument in, in, in support of doing something a bit more holistic, but, um, We'll have to wait and see. But um, yeah. I mean, my immediate reaction to that is how how that's then graded, you know, and, and what mm. the because there's something very neat and tidy about an exam, right? In mm. the, it is sent off, it's graded, it's. I don't think, yeah, he he he, he kind of sung the praises of something like a paper one, where you can't really yeah. kind of. Um, uh, you know, uh, drill them for it, or you can't. You know, it yes. really just rely on the individual students' kind of um, ability to take something and be independent with its with their analysis. But maybe things like, you know, you'll see another either IO or HLSA in the place of a paper two, for example. But mm. I don't. Who knows? I think the next review is in like 2025, so it won't be. Yeah, for it's a, a while away. A long time. It's a while away. How just just on that on that topic actually how did you find running the um ia for english this year um it it was really tough in terms of um i actually started teaching i was a literature teacher and then moved over to langlet just because i felt like the literature side of things was relatively well managed or well oiled for for the next few years and then so we went into the Langlet thing and it was just it was the first year that the new course came in and it was a nightmare in terms of these bodies of works and kind of um um I think Langlet's quite difficult at the best of times with choosing just the the, the four literary texts that you want to do six not too bad if it's HL um but for the IO we were I feel like there was a lot of gray areas in terms of staying on the right side of academic honesty, but at the same time, giving the kids a fighting chance. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk to Guillermo about. And he kind of echoed the same thing, which we'd basically uh, uh, compiled in terms of how best to approach the IO, where you're talking about like two minutes for the extract, two minutes for the body. And that to me sounds like the least IB thing yeah. I've ever heard yeah. in the book, but obviously they found through trial and, and, and error, that is the only way for it to manifest itself. And he, he tried to put a positive spin on it, which I sort of agree with, um, which is that he got um, some feedback from some senior examiner, which is, if anything, this really helps them to solidify their, their, their um, skill of synthesis mm. and keeping focused on one particular book in what world do we talk about literature or language or mass communication at all in that kind of very uh, prescriptive 90 seconds, two minutes, two minutes, two minutes. The only genuine organic part of it to me is the question and answer Mm. thing at the end. But even that can be gamed if you're a less scrupulous school. So um, I, I, I don't like it. I kind of like the idea of it, but I think in practice it's it's unworkable, and the kids certainly didn't. Okay, I think they like yeah. it. I like the fact that I think they they like the fact that they can prepare for it. Yes, but I don't know. It's uh, all the all the, the 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 higher attainment students who did prepare for it really well mm. were going at double speed. Yes, 
to get through it. And, you know, on average, they finished at like nine minutes, 30 seconds. Mm. And they couldn't believe that they did, you know, and they obviously, um, I did a bit of marking for the lit IO and um, that was, that was like a big, a big thing. Like do not award more than like eight if it seems, you know, pre-prepared or it seems like okay. overly um, whatever. But I, again, to, to go back to, to, to Guillermo, he said that they'd have to know it and have prepared so well as to make it sound natural. Mm. And that to me, again, just sounds like a natural presentation going through the looking glass. It's just, it's yeah, yeah. completely, yeah. I don't know, thoughts. Yeah. You, you... No, I, I do. I share a lot of those kind of um, slight misgivings about it, but I do think that as a teacher, it's much more manageable than the old one was mm. um, in terms of the amount of time which is required to teach mm. it and prepare the students for it. I felt that the old version was too burdensome um, mm. for um, the amount of time that it took up in the in the year and the amount of preparation the students required for it. So I think that there's definitely a, a benefit here in that it's it sits more lightly within the overall kind of shape of the program um, or the shape of the course rather. Um, but we definitely had exactly the same issues. We had, you know, students who prepared it to within an inch of their life and then rattled through it um, very, very quickly. Um, uh, and then we had some students who didn't really do much preparation at all. And again, they fall into a separate trap, right, of, of just not being able to get into any kind of depth in relation mm. to the, the topic that they're actually looking at. Um, so, yeah, I think there's definitely areas that in, where it can be improved um, and it doesn't feel very natural. And the students mm. know that, you know, they're, they're very wise to this, I think. Uh, but um but yeah, you know, I, I think it's it is at least an improvement in terms of teaching. Time. Yeah, I do, I do like the independent side of it. I have to say, yes. like them being able to sort of curate it themselves. Mm. Again, if you're a less scrupulous school, then you you obviously don't um, you can sure. teach towards it. But um, thankfully, we didn't we didn't really do that. And I do I agree with that. The old IO, even yeah, from from a waiting point of view, it was it was pretty hefty. But even that kind of Davina McCall moment of like uh, opening up the envelope and yes. handing them the thing, yes. which is a hell of a reference for anyone over 35, um, <laughs> is that that thankfully is, you know, best confined to people. Yeah, yeah. And I also think that the one, one good thing about it, I think, is that I've, I've really enjoyed getting, finding different ways to teach, uh, to, to get the students to explore global issues in relation to mm. the texts. Um and I think that's actually been really good. So, at the, you know, we make sure that with each text that we look at, there is a, a separate kind of section lesson or two where we look at, okay, what can this text say about specific global issues? What constitutes a global issue? And then as you get deeper into the course, finding ways to connect these texts um, via different global issues. You know, I think so that's had, easier to do in literature than language, though. Yeah. Potentially, yeah. Yeah, I've had, um, so I've had some, uh, some good success with that. And then at the end of the course, kind of, setting up almost like a uh, um, a true crime detective board, you know, where you get like <laughs> yeah, the, the text and you, yeah. Yeah, you kind of draw lines or, or have yeah. string kind of between the texts, which shows that there is a connection and then finding ways to pair them up for the IA um, was, was quite good. Um, so, yeah, I, I think a work in progress, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, with regards to like you've obviously talked about lit there i feel like the um the 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 scope for choosing literature text at dp is 
is a lot easier than Langlet, perhaps. But uh, even like across NYP, um, like the middle years, upper years, whatever. How do you um, approach or feel about the need to balance sort of canonized writers with um, new voices in the IB mm-hmm. curriculum? Um, where it's obviously last few years, there's been a lot of talk about decolonizing um, the canon and this kind of thing. What sort of conversations do you have as a department or even just with yourself about how to approach that? Yeah, I think it's a really, it's a really interesting and quite a difficult question. Um, and it's definitely a, a work in progress for us as a department um, and, and also for me within my, my own uh, diploma classroom. Um, an area that I really want to explore more and I haven't yet done is um, looking at specific kind of um, Hong Kong writers mm. um, or um, China-based writers. We don't have much of that on our curriculum at the moment, which we need to have. Um, I've taught specific kind of um I've taught some poets from Hong Kong before and and things like this, but in terms of actually getting them on the curriculum um, and on the reading list is something I still need to to work on. Uh, So, yeah, I think one of the the key things that we've done recently is actually teaching. um, I mean, the the canonical texts are canonical um, because someone says they're canonical, of course, Mm. but it's also, of course, because they are, foundational in some sense for better or for worse um within the study of literature so i don't think um you know that there definitely needs to be a move to a move away from having an entirely kind of canonical reading list but i think the maintenance of those some of those canonical texts on reading lists is important because they allow access to actually teaching what the canon is and how it's formed and who has the power to say that something is a canonical text and and, or not. Um, so I think teaching the, the kind of history of the term is also very, very important. And it's something that I do in my literature class at the start of um, grade 11. So the first unit, first unit is on cultural critiques. And the first text that we look at is Chinua um, Achebe's Things Fall Apart, which is a really interesting text for many reasons. One of which is that it's actually kind of canonical, right? In a, mm. in a, um, in a post-colonial sense, it's one of the canonical post-colonial texts, um, but also not uncontroversial because it's one of the reasons it's canonical is that it was written in English yeah. um, and originally written in English by Chinua Achebe rather than, than in Igbo, which would be his mm. local language. And there's a really interesting debate to teach there um, because uh, the, uh, where's he from? Ken, the Kenyan writer, um, Ngugi Wationgo, wrote... Um, I think he, did he, I can't remember if it was a lecture he gave or if he wrote an article um, criticizing Achebe for writing in English. Um, and so he, that he wrote his, um, many of his original novels in Gikuyu. And he says, well, you know, you can't use the language of the oppressor in writing about your own culture. And Achebe responds and says, well, I'm using this language as a weapon to destroy the empire from within. Right. I'm using language because it is so widely spoken as something to attack um, the colonial center. And I think that's a really I found that a really interesting way to actually explore, you know, powers of representation. Yeah, the the, the idea of kind of um, we talk about platforming sometimes in relation to like that kind of mm. thing. So like using English as a way to kind of criticize 
people or writers or the people who kind of like construct the canon, so to speak, in English. And it comes back to that kind of debate that should we be teaching things like To Kill a Mockingbird Mm. or Of Mice and Men or any kind of 20th century American British text, which clearly has minority people within it placed in, uh, even if it's a sympathetic role, a very, very, very subjugated role. Mm. And it kind of leads to those conversations of, um, again, only a DP level, but maybe IGCSE level, but certainly DP level of, um, to what extent is you know the, the the platform a bit of a poison chalice? Do you give um, do you give people kind of like the the opportunity to speak at universities who have hateful opinions in order to mm. kind of shout them not shout them down but reason um, and and kind of criticize them in, in in a logical way? And the same thing extends to, I mean, probably not things fall apart. That's obviously written by you know um, someone who's like a. Um, a pretty kind of prevalent sort of anti-colonial person, but even those sort of like um, texts which um, aim to be kind of fighting the corner of minority causes, but are kind of still deeply problematic. Um, mm. Is it worth teaching those texts if only for um, you know an opportunity to hold them up and criticise them and this kind of thing? It is it, it is a fascinating conversation which is really tough. It, it's it's always. I always kind of ask people this, but like at Carmel, are you, um, is the school kind of mostly Hong Kong students or a mix of Hong, uh, sort of students from across the world or what, what's the sort of demographic there? Um, it's a mix. Uh, yeah. So we've got um, students from all over the world, international mm. um, students from, from, I can't remember exactly how many countries. Um, yeah. But, but there's no uh, one kind of over, like the, 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 there's not like a predominant sort of... Um, not really no yeah. no so we've got uh, yeah international students from lots of different places and then we've got um around i think around 30 uh, 30 percent um of students from um from hong kong and china mm. um something something like that that's quite good i always think like that because the school i'm at currently it's like 98 percent sort of like hong kong and that, that 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 has positives and, and negatives in terms of having those conversations, yes. but it can sometimes feel like, you know, the entire class feels like a a group, and then you're this person who's come over from, hmm. you know, the UK or somewhere like that. But I, I do think if it's like a multi background, multicultural, multi whatever, um, those conversations are maybe a little bit easier at times, or a little bit more kind of diverse, so to speak, in terms of. Um, um, what it's like for for different different cultures around the world. Anyway, um, in in terms of um, those students that you mentioned a moment ago, is is there anything which um, do they have like specific challenges which you've noticed um, like common challenges, whether it's like a reading related thing or a writing related thing? Um, what what have you noticed in your time at Carmel, and and how as a department or as a teacher have you tried to overcome this? Yeah, um, students aren't reading enough, mm. full stop. Um, I'm sure that this is, I'm sure that everything I say now is going to be um, understood by every English teacher. Um, that generally speaking, you know, you know, you can pretty much tell the students who read and the students who don't. Um, and that has a, can have a really big impact in the classroom, especially, of course, if the students who aren't reading are also the students with the lower 
language ability in English um, to begin with. Um, now, we've had some success in, in recent years doing um, drop everything and read classes, mm. so dear classes, mm. um, which have a have had a twofold effect actually. Um, one is that the students like it because we don't do it that often, but maybe every couple of weeks we'll have a lesson in the library um, where we'll just be sitting and quietly reading um, a text that they've decided to, um, to, to pick up. Um, but then alongside that, we usually do some kind of ancillary activities. They'll be working on like a, Google, a very short Google Slides presentation where maybe they'll be recording an aspect of that text, um, you mm. know, doing some dialogue or um, maybe I think our final activity last year was coming up with like a movie trailer for the book or something like this. Um, so there's usually something else that they're doing alongside the reading. But the benefit of that is that one, they're reading um, and generally they enjoy it. And two, then they're off their laptops. Now, I don't know in your school the extent to which students are learning via their laptops, but, you know, certainly uh, ours is a one-to-one student laptop school, so they have them with them all the time. And they also enjoy just the opportunity to not do that and not to um, have that laptop in front of them. Uh, so that's on the reading side of things, um, which we've had some success with, but that's kind of a it's a bigger problem, right? The, mm. the, the not reading is a, is a bigger issue, I think, that, that we face um, culturally. Um, there's some interesting discussions to be had about that in the classroom as well, but uh, in terms of a silver bullet to crack that, we don't have one. It's um, tough, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the, the, and, dear uh, thing, the dear thing is, yeah, it's, it's definitely kind of, we, we do it as well, but yeah. yeah sorry, I, I cut you off there. Go no, on. no. Um, and then the other thing is that we do have students who arrive with, you know, we have, we're a comprehensive intake uh, and we don't stream our English classes. I don't know if you do, but um, so we do have comprehensive English classes throughout the whole of the school. And we also have students who arrive um, without really any English sometimes um, or very, very limited English. Um, so in terms of, you know, ways to manage that as a classroom teacher, that can be really challenging. Uh, the thing that it's just really, I, and again, the, the lack of a silver bullet here is is uh, is obvious, but it comes down to just a lot of work, right? Um, communication between, you know, the various invested um, bodies involved with the students who arrive, right? So working with your pastoral team, working with your learning enhancement coordinator, developing those individual educational plans for those students, making sure that teachers stick to those educational plans and are are aware of the challenges that students face in different classrooms and in different settings. Um, so it's it really does come down to, I think, working very closely together as a faculty to ensure that um, those differing language levels or differing ability levels outside of English um, are managed and are approached, you know, sensitively and, and mm. with, you know, differentiated instruction, um, which is very easy to say, um, but very difficult to do. Uh, the one thing that I always return to um, with uh, in the English classroom and, and beyond is the idea of options, um, which basically comes straight out of um, UDL, like universal design for learning. Um, so, you know, options for um, the way that you represent the content to the student. So it's not all just written language right there are different ways that students can access the information that they're needing to access <clears throat> then options for the way 
that they represent their knowledge. So you're not just asking them to write a, a you know, a teal paragraph explaining what it is they've known, they know, but you provide options for them in this way. And then options for the way that you actually attempt to engage the students in the subject. Uh, I think those are really, really important kind of foundational aspects for, for providing, um, well, as it as it as it's called, right, universal learning um, within mm. a classroom where you have very, very mixed abilities, um, and it doesn't always work, of course. Um, but there are there are some um, successes along the way, and I think that's 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 what's really important. Um, we've had some incredible successes in the school. Um, in fact, this year. Um, we had a student who, I think he arrived in grade eight, um, when he had English, but very limited English. Um, he'd studied in, um, I think he studied in China and then he'd studied in Venezuela and then he came to Hong Kong. Um, and, uh, and he got a 45 this year um, wow. in, the, in the diploma. Um, a lot of that, you know, comes down to the student's grit and determination to do well. Okay. You know, it's not, we're not, I'm not sitting here saying that we did that. Um, the student did that. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, setting in place, I think, or having the scaffolding that allows a student like that to, ex- to succeed is, is obviously very important. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. I think you kind of like mentioned a few, a few, few other stakeholders there in terms of like the pastoral team or learning enhancement person mm-hmm. or whatever. And I find that I think it's really complicated in international schools in terms of reaching out to or at least expecting something of the parents um, because I mean, from personal experience, just you know, trying to read as much as possible, like in my spare time. Yes. Um, that just the temptation to look on whatever it is on you know the phone or something like that. The phone is built to keep you entertained, but entertained in a very very um, easy way, for lack of mm. a better word. And it's so much. And if you're you know if you are a student from China or relatively low language kind of. Um, student in, in terms of English you I think yeah like you say it's the grit and determination but if you don't have those things in abundance it's so much easier to put the book down yes. and and pick up the the tablet or whatever and if mum and dad are I don't know about around the world but certainly in Hong Kong it is a reality that a lot of the kids come across the border to Hong Kong and mum and dad are still in you know Guangzhou or um shanghai or, or wherever and and they're only living with the the helper or the auntie or the uncle and it's tough yeah it is it is it is really difficult um to to maintain that kind of because th- i think the teacher can only do so much you can be the most passionate yeah. person in the world um but if it's not enshrined in the school that's one thing and if it's not enshrined at home then that's that, that that's really tough yeah I agreed. Yeah, I think a lot of it also comes down to conversations with parents um, mm. and ensuring that you know there is that that messaging is is consistent. Um, but I mean, I I have exactly the same struggle. I mean, I read a lot less than I used to um, mm. because I'm I have a lot more distractions than I used to have, <laughs> and uh, and you know if it's happening to me and and I'm aware of it. Um, mm it's much more likely to be happening to students who aren't aware it's happening to them, <laughs> you know, mm. that they're, that they're, when their life has been, when they've been brought up alongside this technology, which I wasn't, um, mm. then you take it for granted. And therefore, yeah, I'll pick up my phone. I won't pick up a book. Mm. Um, in, in terms of like going back to your role as DP coordinator, this seems to be, for anyone who hasn't done the IB or, or um, you know, NYP, DP, whatever, um, I find that whenever I 
have been interviewed in the past only once or twice, but that the idea of inquiry always raises its head. Um, mm. What kind of conversations do you have at Carmel about inquiry? How deeply is it enshrined into the English curriculum? Like how do you as a school, a school go about it? Because there's not any one way that it's supposed to be kind of introduced into the, the school environment. So what have, been, mm. what have been your experiences with inquiry at Carmel? Well, I think there's. I think it's one of the central tensions of the IB actually um, between the MYP and the DP in particular. So, kind of thinking about this more as my in my role as the diploma coordinator, mm. <clears throat> I think that if particularly if you're not doing the e assessments at the end of the MYP, um, there's a lot more space within the MYP to to foster inquiry, and mm. I think that there are there are um, there are some real, really good opportunities, I think, um, within the MYP for allowing room and space for inquiry to grow as the unit develops and for allowing particular units to deviate from um, perhaps what's been originally planned by the teacher based upon learning or um, reactions to the, the material from the students themselves. Um, but I think in the diploma programme, that's much more difficult um because the diploma program of course is a prescriptive mm. um curriculum in a, in, a, in a much more well it's not prescriptive but it's there is a syllabus right and there is a syllabus which needs to be taught um and particularly if you're looking at certain content heavy subjects like in the sciences um it's difficult to find the time <laughs> to to allow that kind of um inquiry-based um, learning to take place within the classroom. Um, because of course, both teachers and students in the diploma program, not just the students, the teachers as well, are under that pressure of IAs, of exams, of results, right? Um, so it can be, I think there's a, there is a tension between the, and maybe actually this is, it returns to what you said earlier about the tension within the IB itself between Cardiff and The Hague. Um, that I think there's a tension between the philosophy or the spirit of the IB, so let's say The Hague, and the results and the um, demands of the IB, which let's call Cardiff, right? So I think actually that that's a, it's a really interesting thing that you raised there, sorry, <coughs> um, because I see that play out within the school itself where the IB is kind of the, the sorry, the DP is kind of the battleground for that because you really want to maintain the spirit and ethos of the IB mm. and the inquiry driven um, focus of the learning. But you have to meet that with the, the, the other demands of the IB, which is that fundamentally for, you know, if you strip it down to its bare bones, it's a stepping stone for these kids to go to university and that's how they'll see it. Uh, and you need to ensure that um, you facilitate that in the best way that you possibly can. And perhaps um, within some subjects, the best way to achieve that isn't through inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's a, a, a fundamental tension um, which, which exists. Now, ways to counter that um, is it's a tricky, again, it's a tricky question to consider within the English uh, department 
um, it's actually there's been more space freed up in the past two years because they removed components from the exams. Mm, um, you know, so now that the IB of uh, so for this sorry, the current year and next year they won't have paper two. Um, there's actually a lot more room now for us to um, find kind of more project based or inquiry based activities for the students to engage in. Um, I always have kind of routinely started my text studies um, with the DP students in much more of a kind of open forum um, seminar style discussion uh, <clears throat> and then allowing the the kind of fruits of that discussion to lead where the um, where the unit then goes or where our study of the text then goes mm-hmm. um, and likewise you know if I'm learning the text alongside the students to a certain extent that also encourages that inquiry-based learning within the classroom because mm-hmm. I'm not directing it right and it it the the language or the learning of the text or the the study of the text emerges out of the discussion which is coming from the students not from me um, but whether that's easily transposed into other um, areas of the curriculum I, I I'm not I'm not convinced it can be so yeah a slightly kind of r- rambling answer to that but <laughs> no but like a lot of good points there I think I read um uh, I can't remember the name of the guy now. There's a book called Dive Into Inquiry called uh, by I think it's called Trevor McKenzie. Okay. I just I, my my inquiry has not been as as a school. Um, the one that I was at um the last academic year, um, uh, we 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 could have done better. Certainly as a department, anyway. I'm not sure about other departments. Um, but I, I'm moving to a new school next year and I don't know. Okay. I, I can only assume that like the inquiry might, will be a little bit more kind of um, in depth or a little bit more kind of uh, considered with regard to sort of the curricula and things. But the advice that he gave was fantastic. It was very interesting. And it talked about like four tiers of um, inquiry and, and uh, you know, for the sake of brevity, you know, the, the lowest tier would be, you have a discussion about how you get to the end goal. You you mm-hmm. set the summative assessment, but how do we do this? Do you prefer to? And even that was problematic in terms of English because it was saying like, do you prefer to study novels, uh, the yeah. same novel together, or do? And I'm like, well, <clears throat> realistically, wh- when yeah. are we going to order these novels? And yeah, all these kind of boring kind of admin things. But the the, the, the okay, you can work around that. I think I think may, maybe you could. But the fourth one, the most, um, the, the the one that I think he was uh, using as like his unique, uh, like his USP for the book was the fact that you can eventually reach a state of free inquiry, mm-hmm. where it's basically they just go into studying whatever they want to study, and the, the outcome is whatever they want to be, and it exactly comes back to what you just said a moment ago about in the MYP, yeah, within reason. Um, yeah you could probably get away with doing that with a lot of teamwork and buy-in from the students and training and stuff. But if I, if, if I said to the students, even on the, you know, tier two or T3 mm-hmm. of this inquiry thing, what do you think the summative assessment should look like in a DP thing for the IO? Most of them would say, well, I think I'd like to practice the IO. I think I'd like to practice the HLSA. I yeah. don't want to, create my own poetry anthology as lovely as that would be and i'm not i'm not kind of demeaning that idea whatsoever i think it'd be great most of my students would probably say well can we do something approaching what paper one looks like or what paper two looks like so that that um tension is yeah is real and and maybe it goes back to that thing i said before about 
if if the kind of if the IB is serious about mm. deconstructing summative assessment, maybe <clears> there will be a shift to that in the future. Yeah, but, yeah. I you know I think a, a lot of this is um, a lot of this is beautiful on on paper, right? A lot mm. of these ideas look wonderful, um, and from my personal experience as a teacher, I think I can sometimes do it. And when mm. I do it, it works really well and I love it. Mm. But can I do it all the time? Absolutely not. You know, there's, there, isn't, there isn't enough time. There isn't enough um, planning uh, time available to be able to make that happen. And nor would it work, I don't think, if you did it all the time. I think, you mm. know, there is a certain extent to which the students would derail if you, uh, if you gave them that yeah. space. Um, so I think, they, you know, there are, I think it's a, it's a good kind of horizon to aim at, right? And I think, uh, again, going back to that kind of spirit of the IB, um, it's a good horizon to aim at and it's a good kind of vision to have as your kind of end goal of teaching, but being aware all the time that you will fail and that you, <laughs> that, that, um, you, you know, going back to a, a, uh, a Thomas Beckett um, quote that you just need to learn how to fail better. Um, mm. You know, I think that's... Uh, Sorry, it's not Thomas Beckett, Samuel Beckett. Um, <laughs> uh, Samuel Beckett quote. Um, you, you need to learn how to fail better and that you'll continue, you will, you know, you just need to improve as you go. Um, yeah. And that's, that's a, I think, a laudable approach for teachers because most teachers, most good teachers are teachers who are willing to always learn and continue to learn. And I think that's key. Yeah. Um, okay, last question. Even I know that you're obviously like a, a lit teacher at the moment. Um, but with DP English A now kind of putting the language text in the Langlet course on like a, uh, in a similar standing to that of, of the literature, like they're on par in terms of how much time should be devoted to it, how, how much depth should go into the study of them with the, the, the whole body of work idea mm. and stuff like that. Um, do you think there's any kind of, text types writers or this kind of thing that you've come into contact with whilst um head of department and langlet teacher in the past that you think have to be covered there is obviously no canon for mm. language texts but if there were um what kind of text types do you think need to be covered in langlet and or particular writers within those genres um yeah it's definitely an area that i'm i'm less familiar with uh, I know that our um, Langlit teachers have had um, real success in this iteration so with this uh, uh, exam cohort with you know bodies of work around music directors um, oh. <coughs> around photo essay journalists uh, um, works from you know people like Shepherd Ferry or Banksy yeah. um, who you may you know consider kind of canonical Langlit texts perhaps um, in some sense, um, but it feels to me like there's a really good opportunity um, to work on media literacy. And yeah. rather than I, rather than actually think about specific texts or text types, which will be the the key um, go-to texts, really think about what the ultimate kind of endpoint of this might be in terms of media literacy, in terms of you know our kind of cultural crisis around fake news um, yeah. and what it means to engage now with the new with news media and i think 
Um, there's a real opportunity within the Langlet course to, to approach uh, this with students. And, you know, perhaps rather than specific text types, think it more, think more about teaching students about irony, about sarcasm, um, mm. things which actually I found that students can really struggle with. Um, you know, humorous texts, ironical texts, um, sarcastic texts, they can miss the point of these quite quickly. And I actually think that's perhaps um, a consequence of this kind of um, oversaturated media diet that most people now have. Um, but yeah, I think there's, I think there's an, a, an opportunity to engage with something on a more kind of important cultural level here um, to do with whether we can and how we can evaluate the um, coherence or um, bias of particular um, uh, news stories that we're reading and doing mm -hmm. kind of those OPVL um, history style analyses of sources within um, within the English classroom potentially. What does that, that mean? Or, What's that OPVL? Um, origin. Oh, you're going to see a tricky question now. Origin. <laughs> origin. Purpose. I'm gonna have to. I can't remember. Um, origin, <laughs> purpose. This is uh, if you're studying like a history source, is it? Um, so it's a. It's. A, I'm looking at origin, <laughs> purpose, value, and limitation. Here we go. Um, okay. So yeah, it's okay. a way of a way of when you're looking at a historical source. What value is this to me? Uh, what what biases might be included in this? Can I rely on it for historical evidence within my? writing yeah. or you know what limitations does this potentially have based upon who wrote it and what their viewpoint potentially is yeah. so that might be another way of you know engaging with that within the english um within the english classroom mm, absolutely um, yeah but i also think that the idea of done I, I think they've they've come up with some really interesting ways of doing this by bringing the key concepts into the diploma uh, diploma mm. program for for um, english you know so looking at things like perspective, looking at, um, at things like transformation and actually using those key concepts as ways into um, interesting bodies of work. Because yeah. I think that's really what they're looking for, right? They're looking for, particularly in the lit, you know, and, and it's the same in the lang lit, finding texts which engage with these um, key concepts and using those key concepts kind of as, as drivers for the, for the course. Um, so again, you know, that may be a really interesting way of, of doing that with Langlit and saying, okay, we've got a key concept here on, um, I think there's one on perspective, maybe I've misremembered. No, um, I think, yeah. yeah. And, and thinking about perspective in relation to media literacy and in, in relation to um, fake news and these kinds of things, that might be an interesting way of approaching it. Yeah, that is, yeah. There, there, there was like a lot of talk, I remember it when the... Um, and when the new iteration of the course came in, where it was talking about like, can can we do tweets? Can we do mm. so that that whole like kind of thing of like where we're consuming um, um, the news and media and things like that was a big yeah talking I, point. I do think that it still needs to be um, refined by the IB. Mm. I think that we had lots of lots of department meetings about what constitutes a body of work and what doesn't, mm. um, and I think there's there's definitely scope there for. Um, you know, teacher error um, mm. when it comes, you know, and, and those teacher errors could potentially be catastrophic um, when it comes to results, right? If a student has based an essay on a body of work or 
or their IA on a body of work, which isn't a body of work, then that could potentially be a, a, a real issue. In, so I, I do think more um, guidance there would be useful. So the the what what shocked me a little bit was, and I'm not sure how kind of reliable this is, but when I did the marking for the the IO for the lit, it seems to me that the marker is almost in charge of gauging whether or not something is a body of work, mm. if you know what I mean. Like it says. Um, so for example, I suppose in lit, if they've mistakenly done a language text as a lit text, which is okay. slightly more easily done than people might think. For example, if you do Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie speeches, well, technically mm. she's on the PRL. So you've transgressed the whatever that that's up to the, the individual marker to spot that. Otherwise it goes under the, the thing, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? It would, so, I mean, which is good and bad, I suppose. Like it, it's, it seems to me that it, it's, it's unfortunate you can't do Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie speeches if you want to, because you know as Langlet, um, it, it would take up one of your literature um, choices. But the tweet thing, um, yeah, like especially I think, and again, I'm like I'm harking back to this Guillermo thing all the time. But he said technically mm. you couldn't do the tweets because well you could if it was the HLSA, but you couldn't do it for the IO because you can only have one extract and a tweet yes. is obviously only like a hundred and whatever characters long. And so there are, yeah, there are, there are kind of yeah, that's like, true. Uh, that's existing true. issues, which as you say, um, I think the IB still needs to hopefully have ironed out having had like a, a set of examinations to go off this, this year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also course, into the train. Yeah. Eventually, um, having to incorporate paper two into the cur uh, curriculum teaching as well, because uh, yeah, you know having that missing for the moment is actually is I think um, once that is incorporated or reincorporated um, specifically into the teaching, uh, certainly with the literature, I generally teach the, the the students who take literature in my school are generally higher level. Um, going through all of that, thirteen texts and mm. um, paper one, paper two, IA is going to be um, it's going to be uh, tricky. Gonna be, we're going to be up against it, I think. Another thing to look forward to. Um, okay, yeah, all that remains uh, for me to say, Nick, is thank you very much for giving up uh, a small slice of your summer holiday. I uh, hope you haven't got too thank much to do much, in terms of your DP coordination, but uh, best of luck with that next year. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. really enjoyed it. <laughs>